Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Unstoppable the Podcast. I'm your host and my name is Kerwin Ray and today we're going to be looking to the future. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have a crystal ball? Maybe two. Well, today I'm going to be talking to a man who has crystal balls. His name is Dr. Keith Suter. And this man is one of the world's leading global futurists and one of the most influential of his kind. But have you ever wondered if the world is doomed, if the world is getting more dangerous, or is there more opportunity than ever before? But more importantly, where are the latest and greatest innovations going to come from? In this episode, we dive deep with Dr. Keith Suter. And he holds, let me tell you, not one, not two, but three doctorates and is considered to be one of the world's most influential global futurist. He is a thinker. He is a thought leader. And we talk all things future. We talk about humans. We talk about robots. We talk about the coexistence and the modern schooling system and how we should be future proofing our kids and possibly our business as well. This one was intense. Let me tell you. So buckle up, Dorothy, because Kansas is about to go bye-bye. So listen up. Keith Suter, thank you for being here. Thank you. Now, Keith, um, it is really exciting to have you here. You're considered by many to be one of the, the top Australian futurists that we've, we've ever seen. Uh, but for those people who don't know who you are or what a futurist is, tell people a little bit about yourself. Well, basically, my tagline is I help people make sense of the world. Right. So if I'm travelling in an elevator and somebody says, what do you do? I say, I help people make sense of the world. And then we can drill down a number of ways. One is that it can be very much literally helping people to understand what's going on in world affairs, what um, the United States is doing, what Australia is doing, etc., uh, and the rise of China. All of those things, that's one cluster of things. But secondly, I also help people to make sense of the world from a business point of view, l- working with businesses on how they can improve their productivity. So that's not nearly as high profile as my morning sessions on Channel 7 right. uh, or Sky or evening sessions on on Sky TV. But So that they do the foreign affairs. But this is also a separate part of helping people make sense of the world. For example, I was speaking recently at a conference looking at information technology and the impact that it'll have on the legal profession. And I've given another presentation to a group of real estate agents. What will information technology mean to their business? Because we're living through a giant revolution at this time. Mm. Biggest amount of revolutionary change in 1750, which is when the British began the Industrial Revolution. So a huge amount of change that's going on. So I'm helping people just to make sense of all the changes that they see going on around them. Not just politics, but also what's going on in terms of uh, economic trends, social trends and technological trends. It's interesting. You talk about productivity, which is, you know, a huge component of success in business and being able to be productive at the right things. What have you learned about the with with the work that you're doing right now that would be able to impact, say, a small business owner, you know, who's working every day when it comes to increasing productivity? How does how does your futurist perspective help, you know, the everyday business owner? There are basically three ways of thinking about the future. So when I'm with a group of people, I go through the three ways. One is prediction. Um, most predictions, I think, are a waste of time. I go to so many conferences when we hear economists saying what's going to happen in the next 90 days. <laughs> but one prediction has held up, and it's called Moore's Law. Right. So Gordon Moore, a founder of Intel, still alive, living in retirement in Hawaii. Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, predicted 50-odd years ago that the power of computers will double every 18 months to two years and will halve in price every 18 months or two years. That's the most profound prediction made in the 20th century that will affect our lives in the 21st century. So I go around looking, helping people to look at what the impact of information technology could be on their businesses. 
So that's one thing that I look at. Yeah, right. How can you make greater use of information technology? I'm not an IT evangelist. Mm-hmm. You know, I go to some conferences and I hear IT evangelists tell us that uh, IT is going to uh, heal the sick, raise the dead and end the drought. I'm not in that category. Right. But I do agree that it's revolutionary. It is revolutionary, but not necessarily utopian. It's going to change our lives, but not necessarily always for the better. So that's one way, prediction. Second way of thinking about the future is uh, preferred futures, what you would like to see happen. So I spend time with clients helping them work through some sort of new vision for their business. Because I think one of the problems for business people is they spend so much time inside the business, they don't get a chance to get back and see the wider context, to see the whole picture. For example, uh, one of the techniques that I use in my workshops is called blue ocean thinking. Mm. So blue ocean thinking uh, says do not try to compete against others. Go after fresh market space. A standard example of it, which is actually in the textbook, Blue Ocean Thinking, by the uh, European authors Kim and Mo Byrne, they talk about yellowtail Australian wine. Now, Americans have money, but they don't have class. So uh, drinking wine requires class, being able to talk about the southern side of the vineyard on the Wednesday afternoon. So they've got money, but they don't have class. Yellowtail Australian wine made in Griffith in New South Wales has targeted the American market. And there are only two types of yellowtail wine, either red or white. Even an American can tell the difference. <laughs> it is the biggest selling foreign wine in the United States. Yeah. That, so they're not competing against the upmarket wines mm. being offered by the Europeans, etc. They they've gone for a completely new market space and developed that. So that is blue ocean thinking. So what you're doing with blue ocean thinking is looking for a whole new different market opportunities. Henry Ford used to say, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said they wanted a faster horse. Yeah, right. So he gave them an automobile. And then by generating the supply, he created the demand for automobiles. Now, the third way of thinking about the future is what could possibly happen. So it's not necessarily being predicted. It's not necessarily what you would like to see happen, but what could happen. Right. And so this is uh, the technique that I use for this is scenario planning. And that was the subject of my third PhD. So with scenario planning, again, very clear technique. You are helping your customers look outside their immediate environment and look at the or look for the soft signals of change. So they're all right. It's that you you just don't notice them. Um, And this goes back to an issue of what's called paradigms or worldviews. My favorite example is the invention of texting by Nokia. So Nokia used to be a fine Finnish company. It's now owned by Microsoft. Uh, But it was run by a group of stale, pale males. (laughs) But the engineers who ran this Finnish company knew they didn't know everything. And so they employed a group of teenage advisors. And so everything they worked on, they showed the teenagers. Is there something here that you can see and we can't see? And so the, um, they invented a facility called texting but could never get it to work because they've got slow, fat fingers. They showed it to their teenage advisors and it was a 15-year-old Finnish schoolboy who realised that Nokia had solved the basic problem of 15-year-olds throughout history. How do you invite a girl out for a date? You text her. 
So this 15-year-old with hormones could see something that the stale pale males could not see. Yeah, right. Now, this is an argument for workforces being male, female, young and old, black and white, because mm. we're looking at the world differently. Scenario planning is a technique, again, for helping you to look at how uh, change is occurring and you look for opportunities. It, it's not about so much getting the future right as to avoid getting it wrong. Mm. Scenario planning, like I find that personally really fascinating. I, I used to work for a guy called um, Stephen Covey. I don't know if you remember the book, The Seven Habits oh, of Oh, yes, of course, people. yeah. And so early in my career I was working with Stephen and, you know, we had some incredible clients. One of them was Shell. Oh, exactly. And, Who, uh, exactly. And that's the technique that I use. Yeah. Yep. Well, that, that's where I'm kind of getting to. I remember <laughs> when I first discovered what scenario planning was. I was, yep. you know, I was, um, I was doing some analysis with one of the uh, managers from Shell, and then they explained to me their, you know, that they have, you know, this, 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 essentially this folder with like 50 different scenarios in it yeah. in the event of something happening, exactly. and their response to it. And I was fascinated at the forward thinking of it. Exactly. And you know, fast forward another 23 years, I'm now in business, and it's something we do on a very regular basis. We're constantly looking at, okay, if this was to happen, or this, or this, or this, what would be the ways that we can respond so that we can maintain a high level of you know, sustainability yeah. and efficiency at the same time without losing momentum. But for someone who's listening to this, who perhaps is maybe hearing about scenario planning for the first time, how would you dumb it down and break it down to its simplest essence for someone to be able to do if they wanted to? Well, there is a technique to be followed. So one is because I work with obviously small businesses as well as big companies. So one, you agree on the basic question. Right. What is, what's keeping you up at night? Uh, for example, it may be a, f a small family-owned business and the kids don't want to inherit the business. So what do we do about the business? That's your question. Then secondly, you in, uh, interview experts in the field. And then thirdly, um, as you're interviewing them, you're looking for them to identify in this context two of the major drivers of change. So everything in life can be reduced to something which is either social or technological, economic, environmental, or political, what's called, I was, I'm using the shell technique, which is um, steep. Yep. You can also make it into pest as well. It depends on how you want to do <laughs> your, uh, arrange the words. But it, it's social, technological, economic, uh, environmental, political. Um, and you then work out from that what are the major drivers of change. Let me give an example. Most of my work is commercial and confidence. But around the year 2000, the Uniting Church which is the largest single provider of residential aged care, aware of the major changes that the Howard government had just introduced on residential aged care, asked for a study on possible scenarios on the future of aged care. And uh, working on that project, we found that the, the major drivers of change uh, would be um, health technology or technology generally, technology of change, uh, and also economics, the state of the global economy. Um, at one of the scenarios, you produce four. You either produce two or you produce four. You never produce three because <laughs> the client goes to the middle one, uh, which is the least confronting. And the whole purpose of scenario planning is to force people out of the comfort zone. So we produced four scenarios. One of them uh, we call Brave New World. Now, in the original novel, Brave New World, there are no older people. So you are in good health for a long period of your life, but then as you begin to die, you get injected with LSD. And the author himself died that way. Wow. Uh, it was legal in those days, so yeah. that's how he chose to end his own life. So we, of the four scenarios, we were warning the aged care sector, keep an eye on these four scenarios, including Brave New World, which will be people living longer 
and wanting to live in their homes and therefore not necessarily needing residential aged care and certainly not the low level of aged care, what, what used to be called hostels. That category has been abolished. So from our point of view, of the four scenarios, we got one of them right. And that was our object of the exercise, that you could create four possible futures. Mm-hmm. If you've done your job properly, one of those four will come into play. And right. we got it right. Beautiful. Fantastic. So um, that's great. You've given a really clear process there, which I think everyone can get into. So when we look at the, the, the situation we're in right now, when we look at the timing that we're in right now, 2017, uh, and we look historically speaking, and also with a futurist perspective, is this a good time to be alive? Or are we kind of at, uh, uh, getting the butt end of the stick for some of us? <laughs> I think it's an interesting time to be alive. Yeah. And it's a worrying time to be alive. Um, the um, in, in, in terms of of actual warfare, this is the safest period we've had for a very long time. If you look at the period from 1900 to today, the most dangerous time to have lived would have been 1900 to 1950, which was the outbreak of the Korean War. Since 1950, there's been a reduction in the total number of wars fought and a total number of people killed in those wars. So the world is actually becoming safer. Um, now, nobody believes me when I say that at the conferences because <laughs> they watch me in the morning and I'm talking about somebody being killed overnight because of terrorism. But we shouldn't over-exaggerate the risk of terrorism. Um, only a handful of people in the Western world get killed through terrorism mm. each year. 30,000 Americans die each year because of guns. Mm. Um, more Americans, in fact, get killed through food poisoning than terrorism. More Americans get killed because of falling off ladders than terrorism. So... My view is that we're living in a world which is becoming safer. And then you've got to ask the question, why is it becoming safer? And this is where the political scientists disagree. One argument is that we have more democracies in the world than ever before, and democracies do not go to war against other democracies because citizens are far too interested in making money. They don't Mm. want to have their weekends disrupted by fighting. Another explanation is what's called McDonald's Golden Arches Theory of World Peace. No two countries that have sold McDonald's have gone to war against each other. <laughs> the argument here is that when you're signing on to free trade, uh, which you are, of course, with McDonald's, uh, when you're signing on for free trade, then the countries tend to have their economies knitted together. Yeah, right. Um, you know, a good example of this, France and Germany, for a 1,000 years, the Franks, the Huns, the French and the Germans have fought each other. Now they've gone for 70-odd years without a war. The economies are just so intermeshed. Mm. And besides, why kill those people? They're our customers. Yeah. <laughs> and look at the way in which we've reinvented China. Yeah. Remember that we had elections yes. in the 50s and 60s on the red menace, the red peril that was going to come and take over Australia. Now we're welcoming the Chinese, mm. providing they bring their wallets with them. Mm. So you see how trade knits the world together. Absolutely. So corporations are actually working for a more peaceful world. Well, that kind of poses an interesting question. Is that one of the solutions then to perhaps world peace, you know, the business bringing us together? Absolutely. I don't think you're ever going to get world peace as a state of heavenly bliss. I, I, I think that humans will always mess things up one way or another. Mm. I, I've worked for half a century now in organisations beginning with the civil service in Whitehall in London. And so often I've seen stupid decisions made on petty personal grounds. You know, super talented people who were denied an opportunity for a promotion, for example, because of the wrong gender. Mm. So a lot of good women 
in the past I've seen passed over for promotion. Um, so there are always sort of, there's always what's called the human element. You know, jealousy, spitefulness, short-sightedness. Greed. Uh, greed, absolutely. Mm. So yeah, there will always, I think, be reasons for some level of violence in the world. But 30-odd yeah. years ago, the late Stella Cornelius and Helena Cornelius, her daughter and I, set up the Conflict Resolution Network. Right. So that is based on the assumption that there will always be conflict in the world. The challenge is how do you handle that conflict? And how it's expressed. And how it's expressed yeah. and how you process it. Yeah. And how do you use a conflict to arrive at an even better end? In other mm. words, how do you make lemonade out of this lemon? Yeah. So being creative with the conflict. So what do you think that means for the future of wars? Are we going to see wars increasingly change, which we've seen, you know, yep. from them being very ground-based wars to being, you know, now we have basically they're fought in the, in the sky from a, yep. you know, from a, a little truck in in Vegas somewhere That's in right. Nevada, you know, <laughs> someone's flying it there. Yeah. So are we going to progressively see wars being fought more autonomously? I think there, w there will be an element. Right. It's not going to be an either-or. Yeah. You certainly will not have the large ground-based armies, you yep. know, that we saw in World War One. World War II. That era has gone. Conscription is going. And we don't need large numbers of forces. What we do need are small groups of people who are well trained to operate on the ground. At the end of the day, you can only do a certain amount with drone warfare. Yeah. You've still got to have boots on the ground. But it, when I joined the war office uh, half a century ago, we were dealing with soldiers who could not sign their name. Mm. So their officer would read out the form and they would just put a cross. They could not even sign their own name. So that was the old days of the army. Now people being recruited in the army are going into a professional activity. They're well-educated, mm. well-motivated. So you will still need boots on the ground, but it is going to be a different type of warfare and a much more complicated form of warfare as well, one without front lines. At least in World War One, World War Two, you knew where the enemy were yeah. and you knew where you could be resting. Whereas in a guerrilla struggle like we see in Iraq or Afghanistan, there is no front line. It's all around you, which means you therefore have high levels of stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. of people who are constantly on the alert for a potential attacker. So it, the nature of warfare is changing. It's far more stressful, far more dangerous, um, but it's not going to be as extensive. Oh, look, I'm going to move off this topic, but I've got one last question. With the way that war and conflict is evolving, do you think that means that there's a greater threat of nuclear conflict or perhaps a lesser threat as we maybe mature as a species? And that, I, I don't say, think, I, sorry, I don't think we do mature. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. If you look was, at history. I was, I was being a little bit hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you look back at history, we yeah. do not mature. Um, you know, Why anybody familiar with the that? Old Testament will feel Why at home in today's society. I think it's because, is it because we're of the commercial nature of war. Is it because war itself is such a commercial? Oh, it's not driver? just war. I think yeah. it's, it, it's human, human nature, nature overall. Yeah. You know, it doesn't change very much from one millennium to the next. Now, it may well change in around 2050. This is the really big one. So this is a separate discussion. Okay. So it's a the debate is over transhumanism. Right. Right. So research that's going when on. When you say transhumanism, what does that mean for someone who may not know what it is? So transhumanism is when we blend the human body with computers. Ooh. So we have the way that going back to Moore's law, the doubling power of computers, transforming our lives. So we will reach what's called the year of singularity, mm -hmm. which means that we will have a computer which will pass at the Turing test. I don't know if you've heard that. Turing test, Alan Turing was a computer pioneer during World War II and subject of a recent movie. Now, he was asked uh, in, the, in the early 50s, um, 
what happens when computers become intelligent? How will we know when they are intelligent? And the, so the Turing test talks about you're speaking to something or someone in another room, asking questions, and then from the response, being able to tell whether it's a human or whether it's a machine. So the Turing test is that you don't know yeah, right. if you're talking to a human being or a computer. So um, we're now going on to voice-activated digital assistants. So as you know, now with, with Amazon, you can buy Alexia yeah. um, and Alexia will book airfares for you, debit your bank account uh, and also look after your hotel bookings. So if you, if you move all this forward, remember the doubling power of computers, mm-hmm. right? It's doubling. Um, for, for people unaware of what this, how traumatic this is going to be, my organisation, the Club of Rome, talks about the invention of the game of chess in the context of Moore's Law. So the chessboard has 64 squares, that's 63 doublings. So the inventor was to be rewarded with anything he wanted. So he said, well, just give me one grain of rice for the first square, two grains of rice for the second, and keep doubling 63 times. If the emperor had honoured his promise, he would have to plant the entire surface of the earth twice over, including the oceans, to grow that amount of rice. Now, we are about halfway through the chessboard. So the really big changes are are yet to take place. So one of them will be the year of singularity and the way in which we will have a computer which which will be able to pass the Turing test. So the, the computer will be as smart as any human being. A second process will be that we will embed computer components inside the human body. Now, the obvious place to start will be the brain. Um, brains, uh, brains are very friendly towards computer chips. Now, if, if you have a, a new heart or new lungs, etc., you spend the rest of your life on tissue rejection jugs, but not, not with the inserting a chip into the brain. The, the brain grows around it, welcomes it as a friend. Is so right? ultimately, uh, say you're going to France, uh, you need to be able to speak French, you will rent a chip which will give you the ability to speak French for the month you are in France. When you come home, you take out the chip and you finish renting the chip. So we're talking, we're moving towards the matrix. You'll be able to download not only a, you know, a, a TV series from Amazon, but also you know, the ability to, to, to learn a different language or exactly. even learn karate. Exactly. These are the chain. This is the transhumanist revolution. Yeah, right. Um, and so it, it's not around the corner. But it's on down the track. Yeah. Um, so we're looking, say, around, say, 2050, yeah, right. 2060. For now, which takes us back to the question about, you know, humans being so stupid and fighting so many wars. Maybe a transhumanists, after all, run by rational computers, would just say, look, fighting is stupid. This is pointless. Stop it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you also predict with a shift like that that there's going to be a shift, or are you maybe already seeing it, in consciousness, in human awareness? There's, there hasn't been much of a shift so far, but I think as soon as you start to build computer chips into brains, absolutely. So who knows where we will be? Do you think we'll be ever reach a point where you'll be able to download someone's consciousness to be able, for them to live in perpetuity? Yes. 
Um, they will be able to live in perpetuity. Yeah. Um, and uh, already, theoretically, you could carry with you a little recorder. Yeah. So you can be recording everything that's happening to you each day. Yeah. You then have that filed away and your grandchildren wow. could listen to your life on it. Whether they'd want yeah. to is <laughs> yeah. another matter. But you've got to be yeah. – it goes back to the point that I'm saying you've got to think about the unthinkable. Mm. Let me give you a concrete example of, of the work in which I do. Last uh, In August of, of 2016, I was a speaker at the Sydney Investment Conference. I was on the panel with a woman from PIMCO. PIMCO is the largest bond-dealing organisation in the world. And we were asked of, for our predictions about the American presidential election. And I, uh, she naturally was a Clinton supporter. They all were in the, in the finance sector. I had just read a very interesting article by Michael Moore, an American filmmaker, not a Trump supporter, but he had written an article warning Democrats why Donald Trump could win in November. And I went through the reasons that he listed and I just summarised those on the platform. The woman from PIMCO went mad. You know, her view was that clearly Mrs Clinton was going to win in November. Um, well, at the end of November, I was at the Melbourne Investment Conference. And there were two people there who had seen the uh, fracas in Sydney with me and the woman. And they said they were so shocked by what I had to say about Donald Trump. They spoke to her during the coffee break, asked her to reaffirm her reasons for uh, thinking that um, Mrs Clinton was going to win. And she ended by saying, and besides, I have never yet met a Trump supporter. And that is exactly the work that I do. Because this is a woman who is in California. She flies across to Wall Street, right? She flew over all of those states that voted for Donald Trump. My advice to people is get out of your epistemic community. That's a fancy term saying groupthink. Yeah. You no, know, we, we tend to get within our own little group of friends. We spend our time thinking solely and, and chatting to people. My advice to people is think about the unthinkable, get out of that epistemic community, which is what I do. Mm. So in, in recent weeks, I've been in Gladstone for mining conferences. I've been at uh, law conferences, speaking at law conferences, etc. My view is you just got out, get out and, and meet as many different types of people as possible. Um, and that reduces the risk of being taken by surprise by the future. Because when I'm talking about what's going on in IT, a lot of people express surprise. Mm. But then you've got to bear in mind that if you look at what goes on in Australian television, of the top 20 programs in Australia, 17 are sport and three are cooking. My current affairs doesn't get a look in. Right? So we will be taken by surprise and then people get angry and they will then vote for extremist politicians because they will feel they've been let down by the political system. Mm. The information is there. It's mm. just that they're not looking at it because they're too busy watching sport or listening to cooking programs. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I noticed you haven't, you've, you've talked about the technological advances, but you haven't mentioned BCI, like uh, brain computer interface. Is that something you see is coming oh, in, absolutely. in the short term? Uh, yeah. And we see it already in a sense uh, with, uh, in the medical area. Yeah. Remember, every year you live, doctors give you another three months. So we're, we are making immense strides in getting people to live longer. Aubrey de Grey at Cambridge has said, well, perhaps we're the last generation to die or the first to live forever. Wow. Yeah. Oof. Now, so going back to the, the specific issue of uh, brain and computer interface, where it is now being uh, developed is in regard to people who are paralysed as a result of war wounds or traffic accidents, etc., and can't move their limbs. 
So they are getting chips. We're back to my favourite subject, chips mm. going into the brains. And they are able to think and tell their arms, lift up that cup. And so there's some really remarkable stuff going on. And we on. have this happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's going on at this mm. very moment. Which for some people would be a bit of a shock. Well, it would be. And I, because again, they're too busy watching sports programs and cooking exactly, shows. That's exactly <laughs> my point. You're going to be blindsided by change. Remember, yeah. you've got to think about the unthinkable, get out of your comfort zone. Well, let's talk, let's talk about some of that change and how you're seeing it happening. You know, we're already starting to see a lot of disruption in cars. We're starting yep. to hear, you know, the the evolution of drones and you know and um, you know unmanned aerial vehicle and the potential for you know short 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 course transport. Yeah. What do you see when it comes to transport? Some of the biggest changes that we're not going to see coming as fast as they are arriving. The the, the major report that I've done on this relates to driverless vehicles. Right. So we're about 12 years away. It depends on where you are. California, parts of England are, are moving ahead very rapidly. In Australia, we are held back by the lack of uh, broadband. Right, right? Yeah. We are the world's 11th largest economy and 39th fastest when it comes to internet. So my Boston University students, when they come out here, they think they've arrived in Central Africa. So, <laughs> so we had to put the chip in to, to listen and read French, but it'll take a few minutes for us to download. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if uh, what will happen with driverless cars, driverless trucks? These are the two big areas. Mm. Uh, Google at our conference for the Club of Rome a couple of years ago talked about 15 years away, so we're saying now about 12, 13 years away. So what will happen is that when you leave this building, you'd call up a vehicle. Um, the vehicle will take you to your next destination. You get out. The bank account will be debited and the vehicle will go off somewhere else. You will not need to buy cars. Mm. Um, now, that is quite a transformation. Now, Uber, which is an investor in this new technology, is already getting used, getting you used to not having a car mm. and just simply calling up somebody else and using their car. And then in 12 years' time, they will say, simply say to their drivers, sorry, we no longer need human beings. It's all going to be fully automated. The truck one is particularly disturbing. So the, the trucks, um, if you're in the United States and you are uh, a person without a college education, the best way for you to continue to earn a living is driving trucks. That profession will be gone, say, in a dozen years. Mm. So the trucks will travel in what are called convoys. So the trucks will be interlinked. They will travel in a group of, say, three or four. That then, I'm not a specialist on the technical stuff, but it, it lowers the air pressure. So it means that you're actually using less energy, less energy yeah. in, the, in the vehicles behind. Right. Um, but, of course, it means that truck drivers will no longer be required. And also what I might call the roadside ecology will change. So the roadside ecology with motels, diners, cafes, etc., yeah. fast food, whatever yeah. you're going to call them, that will also go. You don't have to feed the drivers. Yeah, right. So big transformations coming in the area of driverless vehicles. Now, when I give these talks, I sometimes have politicians in the audience yeah. and they will say to me privately, my word, that's interesting and I agree with you, but I can't talk to my voters about that. I bet they say that about a lot of things. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Remember, quite often a politician knows what to do but doesn't know how to get re-elected after they've done it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, look, one of the things I think that's becoming increasingly obvious to everyone is, you know, even with the 
the possibility of these driverless cars coming around, I, I still imagine congestion is going to be a massive issue. And well, don't forget the cars will talk to each other. Yeah, which will probably obviously increase productivity and efficiency, but I can't get away from the fact that at some point, just through the sheer demand in population, that air travel, like the domestic short-form domestic yeah. air travel in the form of drones, is this a pipe dream because no, of the no, dangers involved? Keep an eye on the Tokyo Olympics. Right. So the driverless car will make its debut there. Right. What about the, the, the drones? Air, yeah, little drones. It'll air, be a little, drones. It's, yeah, it's right. a little drone. Okay. Because we're seeing it in Dubai, like apparently Dubai is yep. testing right now, the first right. um, unmanned aerial testing. And they will give taxi. you wings as well in Dubai. You can fly. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. This is true. And what about education? It'll crumple my suit if I were to do that. But <laughs> <laughs> you'd look good in it, mate, I tell you. <laughs> so when it comes to education, what, what are we going to see? We're already starting to see a disruption in universities and higher education. Yeah. What do you think is coming for us? Well, you've got to bear in mind that education was invented at the time of the British Industrial Revolution. So prior to 1750, we take that as a rough figure, yep. yeah, but, you know, of that order, 1750. Prior to that time, the only people who were educated were people who worked for the Christian church in Western Europe. I'm leaving China away because yep. it's always a separate uh, community, separate civilization. So in Western Europe, it was people who were educated for the church. Um, they need, they were the ones who could read and write. Most kings and queens in England were illiterate, right? So modern literacy is is modern. Uh, 1750, the onset of the Industrial Revolution, moving away from an agricultural society, um, and you've got to have people managing machines. So they can better read labels on machines. So around that time, we start to develop full-time education for children, perhaps only as far as the age of 12, but at least they got a rudimentary education. So that so we have invented an educational system in schools to cater for the Industrial Revolution. My argument, as I'm trying to explain here, is that industrial era is disappearing. We're producing as many things as ever, but not with as many human beings. Similarly, the same with farming. We're growing as much food as ever before, even more, but with fewer workers. So the problem is then that we are producing children to work in factories which will not exist. Mm. So we've therefore got to be thinking about education reform. And again, I've done scenarios on different forms of education there. I've also been working on the whole question of university. I, most of my teaching is now at university level, Boston University or some of the Sydney, you know, and Macquarie, New South Wales universities. Um, that's where I'm really worried um, because we've got the rise of massive open online courses. And also another development is micro-credentialing. So in other mm. words, that we're moving into what's called a gig economy. So a dinosaur like me worked for one organisation for 32 years, right? That era has gone. A lot of organisations won't even last 32 years, right? So instead, people will have several jobs and in fact, maybe several jobs simultaneously. So it's from one gig to the next. Yeah, right. So if you want to learn about how to cope with the future, look at musicians or actors. Yeah, right. That's there in the gig economy mm. and they've always been in the gig economy. Um, so for the gig economy, you will have gig learning. So it doesn't mean, therefore, that you need to have a university degree, which takes three or four years, and learn, learning subjects that you will never encounter when you go into the workforce. Um, and so what you will get, I think, is the rise of micro-credentialing, mm. which is that I'm about to become a, I don't know, work in a factory doing X, Y, and Z, or about to work in a IT. I need to have a knowledge of a particular thing. So I will then study that online right? in my own time, a bit like podcasts, 
You know, it's listing on demand. This is education on demand yeah. to fit your busy life and then you get your bit of paper. So instead of doing my full degree, I will do a fraction of the degree just to get that specific skill. Exactly. And are we going to see universities and other higher education becoming decentralised? Will Absolutely. it move more online or because we're so... You know, we, we are mammals. We do like to congregate. Will that always be an element of education and learning? Getting this is the issue that I've raised with universities because I've said, look, we're moving into what is called now the experience economy. So you've got traditionally mm. three levels of econ economic activity. We now have a fourth. So, so you had farming mm -hmm. or digging things out of the ground like coal. Then you have manufacturing. Um, then you have uh, the service sector. So if you look at the humble coffee bean, you grow the coffee bean. That's the first level. Then you produce cans or uh, bottles or whatever of, of coffee. That's the manufacturing. And then you go to the greasy spoon at the corner and you get yourself a cup of coffee at that place. Now, the experience economy reflects the fact that people are getting richer than ever before and therefore you've got to find new ways of extracting money from them. And so the experience economy, this goes back to remember what I was talking about, that second way of thinking about the future, preferred. Preferred, yeah. Yeah. So the experience economy is where you've got to reorientate yourself for your um, cl potential clients who have got a lot more money. So instead of going to the Greasy Spoon Cafe, you end up going to Starbucks. Yeah, right. Starbucks <laughs> is a great example of that experience economy. Now, universities, if they're going to survive are going to have to go into that experience economy. Indeed, I've been publicising a report which argues that in the next 30 years there'll be only 50 universities left in the world. One, of course, would be Oxford. Um, and you will go there because you'd love the, the old buildings, the way things are done there. But for the rest of humanity, you'll be learning online. Mm. You can still get a Harvard degree yeah. or an Oxford. Well, Oxford is not doing any online teaching, which is interesting. But you'll be able to get from a, a well-known university your bit of paper if you want to do it for four years, but you won't need to attend Harvard wow. or whatever. Yeah. So if you're running the University of Bulamakanka and, and, uh, you know, and you've got people who are in the town of Bulamakanka, but will they prefer to have a degree from Harvard mm. rather than Bulamakanka? Exactly. So that's going to obviously open up a lot more scope for potential new revenue for a lot of these universities, it won't be limited by capacity anymore. But is it also going to potentially devalue the qualification? I don't think it, well, it may. We just don't know um, about what the value of the qualification. Yeah. I guess what the question it does is, mean, will education be become cheaper? Yeah, well, you'll be, well not necessarily. Right, I, I think okay. universities will still try to make money. Um, but it, what it may mean is you're going to end up with an awful lot of vacant buildings mm. as the campuses are closed down. Yeah, right. You know, if you think about it, when I went through as an undergraduate all those years ago, decades ago, I had to go to university. That's the phrase. You go yeah. to university. If it's online learning, the university is coming to you. Amazing. What are we going to see also in the future when it comes to when it comes to um, new drugs and new treatments coming through? Are we going to see a lot of change in that respect? Look, we're seeing what's happening right now in the US when it comes to cannabis, for example. You know, yeah. cannabis is now being touted as one of the new miracle drugs that apparently has been there for a long time, but it hasn't been looked at. You know, it's now been endorsed both medicinally, therapeutically, and now also recreationally. Um, you know, we're now hearing studies are being done with people with MDMA being used to treat PTSD and LSD yeah. uh, and, and things like that. Are we going to start to see drugs, uh, certain chemicals or certain drugs being seen in a new light as we move forward? Oh, we see that all the time. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the pharmaceutical industry is always working on new products. 
Uh, I'd prefer them to spend more time looking at cures for dementia. Mm. As societies get older, dementia is going to be the yeah, major right, problem. Um, but we're getting new line, new drugs coming on all the time. But we also, of course, have um, multi-resistant uh, uh, mm. uh, diseases that are coming super in, bugs. whereby the drug, the superbugs, so the the drugs that have worked in the past don't necessarily work so well in the future. It's a constant battle. And and also, um, having talked a lot about the wealth of people, I also have to recognise that there is a problem with poverty and that we're now seeing TB on the rise in the United States. Now, TB is generally a, a disease that you picked up through crowded circumstances, generally poorer areas. Um, now, we knocked that over in the 1950s and 60s, mm. but then we let our guard down. And now we see TB in 26 of the American states, 50, 26 is of the 50 right? states. Wow. Now, the Australian government is very strict on TB. If you ever try to come out here as a migrant, they're going to check out your lungs. Um, but there is always that risk that TB will re-establish itself in Australia. Yeah, right. So, you know, we've got to be very careful that we don't keep congratulating ourselves for getting everything right because as soon as you let your guard mm. down for a second, there'll be a disease that will come along that will go after you. Yeah, right. So what is business going to look like 30 years from now and how can we prepare for it? Well, what I do is I say um, I do the scenario planning with business. I get them to to think more broadly. I don't think there's one broad sweep that you could say, oh, well, this is what business will look like because it'll be just so different and so varied. Mm. Um, One of the things that um, I am um, encouraging, getting back really to the issue of schooling as well, uh, is that we should teach children to be entrepreneurial. So, again, when I was back at school, post-war London, um, the belief was you just joined a large organisation and you mm. stay with them for the rest of your life and then you get a gold watch at the end of it. Um, that era of work is gone. So my view is that we should be teaching children to be entre- entrepreneurial. And so even if you're working for a big corporation, you've got to see yourself as self-employed. You've always got to be upgrading your skills, always got to be networking. Listening to, well, obviously listening to the right podcasts, etc. Um, and so you've, you've got to be entrepreneurial and don't leave big organisations to plan your life for you mm. uh, because there's no guarantee those organisations will be around. So how do we teach people to be entrepreneurial? Is, is that something that can be taught? Is it, a, is it a creative process? I think it is creative, yep. but I tell you it's hard work when you're with teachers. Remember, <laughs> teachers teach what they were taught. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a high degree of sort of continuity in that. Plus you've got parents who are saying, I want my kids to learn history and whatever. Mm. So it really requires a revolution of the curriculum and even how the school is organised. Um, uh, at the recent real estate conference I was talking at, I was talking about perhaps the need for real estate classes in schools so that people have an idea of what a mortgage is. Yeah. Practical survival Rev- skills. And it's what's, what's amazing though is just that suggestion, it's not that revolutionary. No. <laughs> it seems quite common sense. Yeah. Which is, which is interesting. So you know, I've been involved with trying to get conflict resolution taught in schools yeah. and also, of course, more real estate skills. Yeah. Not with a view to becoming a real estate agent, but just knowing what they're signing up for. Yeah. And financial counselling and the whole issues there of, of learning, you know, the risk of clocking up too much money on credit cards, yeah. et cetera. Uh, there are a lot of survival skills that we should be teaching the children as well as a love of learning. So yeah. they're always picking up new ideas. And when we think about it, entrepreneurial skills are survival skills, yeah. but they're, they're a, new fa- new, a new form, a new flavour. And it's interesting, like Shark Tank in the US, I remember seeing some of their, their user demographic statistics, 
80% of the the people who watch Shark Tank in the United States do it as a family, yeah, which is really quite Excellent. interesting. It's become a very strong part of their culture, which yeah. I guess we're starting to see here now as well. But also you see that in America in a way, you know, the, the kids who set up very on the lemonade, lemonade stand. stand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they a fish doesn't know that it swims in water. Yeah. So they are picking up those skills as part of their culture, mm. as distinct from the old Soviet Union. Mm. When Mikhail Gorbachev, one of my colleagues in the Club of Rome, tried to introduce capitalism into Russia, he, he did not rem, did not realise that there was this subculture of entrepreneurialism in America, which means that capitalism works. In the old Soviet Union, the Tsar or the Communist Party did everything for you. Mm. You didn't think for yourself. And the only people with entrepreneurial skills have been the experts in black markets, which explains the number of criminals that have done well <laughs> yeah, in post-Soviet true. Russia. Yeah. They're the ones who've had the training for it. Yeah, very true. Very true. So media, obviously we're, we're, we're seeing media start to shift now with social media becoming yeah. almost like a news aggregate. Uh, we've now got fake news, you yeah. know, which is always, I guess from my perspective, it's always been there and now it has a, a label. Yeah. Where do you see media headed in the next, say, 20, 20, 10, 20, 30 years? Oh, look, well, I wouldn't even guess for 30 years. Yeah. Um, but certainly what we're seeing is a move from broadcasting to narrowcasting. So broadcasting is a small number of stations transmitting to a large number of people. Yeah, right. We're moving to now narrow casting, which is a large number of stations transmitting to niche markets. Oh, I love that. <laughs> which is what we're yeah. doing here with yeah. podcasts. Yeah, podcasts are an example narrow of narrow casting. Yeah, right. So the old omnibus TV station, ABC, of course, are going through this at this very moment. They're producing programs that people really aren't that interested in. Um, so you, you've got a challenge there. You've also got a challenge that people are getting their information from mobile devices, from computers. They're not sitting down and looking at a box in the corner. Now, I grew up with that world, yeah. but I realise the children coming through now do not do that. They yeah. want to watch TV on mobiles, So, which always goes back to a broadband problem, by yeah. the way. Uh, <laughs> so you've got um, new ways of delivering programs and then also, of course, as you say, with social media, whole question of, of program content. In a Sydney Morning Herald context or ABC, BBC context, um, I'm not saying they always told the truth. In fact, they don't. The media do not tell the truth. The media provide balance, which helps to explain the confusion over climate change uh, because both sides have to be represented, even though 97% of the scientists say there's a problem with human-induced climate change. Mm. So people who just follow debates on TV or radio on climate change are not getting the truth. They're getting the balance, right? And and that's the same with the Herald and a, particularly with the ABC uh, as part of their charter. Um, so we leave it to the intelligent viewer to make their own decisions, but viewers are not necessarily all that intelligent. Uh, so there is going to be a problem, I think, with how you verify claims that are made. As you say, there's now this thing called fake news. We've always had fake news. It's just we're now calling it fake yeah, news. Yeah, we're now calling it. Mm. Um, we've always had propaganda um, of one sort or another, etc. But if you're working in a big public institution like the uh, City Morning Herald, Melbourne Age, there's always the pressure on you to do your best and not to spin out too much of a story. Um, that's just simply peer pressure. That's your epistemic community. Mm. Um, whereas now anybody can put anything up onto Facebook mm. and something like 50% of Americans rely on Facebook as their main source of news. 
It's a little scary. It is very scary. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious to know from your perspective, you know, you're exposed to a lot yeah. of different science. You're exposed to a lot of different commentary. You know, is it from your perspective, are we really in a, a pretty dark state when it comes to climate? We are. Uh, well, I, I, And it's not just climate, right? Yep. It's also a question of resources. Yeah, right. Um, and uh, my organisation, Club of Rome, triggered the environment debate, right, right. back in 1972, book called Limits to Growth. And we, and we developed a number of scenarios on how the world could evolve uh, by around about 2050. Um, and and I prefer scenario thinking. See, my view is that nothing is ever definite in life. You mm. know, Moore's law is the only prediction that I'm always willing to endorse. Um, nothing is ever written in the stars. Um, I show my Boston University students, because my course on Australian politics is pretty heavy going, but I show um, a flash mob dance, which is available on YouTube, putting on the Ritz, being danced in Moscow a, a, a few years ago, right? So this is the capitalist hymn in the centre of Moscow. And I said, look, when I was your age, we were concerned about the nuclear issues and people were predicting nuclear war, World War Three. we're going to die in a Cuban missile crisis, etc. And yet here we see the Soviet Union collapsed and in Moscow... They are dancing in English and singing in English, <laughs> putting on the Ritz, mm. a celebration of American economic policy, which shows, in fact, that when it came to the, the ending the Cold War, Hollywood won. Wow. Right? Yeah. So my view yeah. is that you've always got to leave space for some good news to come in. We have no HG Wells said life is a race between education and disaster. So, but I prefer to look for signs of hope. Yeah, me too. I see new opportunities opening up in terms of the cooperative movement, economics. It'll be different, yeah. right? And it may well be, particularly for young Americans, that they're not going to have the wealth which their parents or grandparents knew in the 1950s when, they were when those people were growing up. It's going to be a different society, um, but people make their own reality. So um, as you get different age groups coming through, they make their own reality. So my father was a Whitehall civil servant all his life, still alive, 93, um, and cannot get his head around how I live my life working from one gig to another. But I've lived this way and, yeah. I, and I enjoy it. I have made my own reality. So people coming along in the future will make their own reality. My view is, is that um, life is worth living and we've got to look for the opportunities. Mm. You've always got to be able to look for the opportunities. There are always opportunities. Even during the Great Depression in America in the 1930s, we could always find jobs to do. Yeah, You've always got to be looking for those opportunities. It goes back to what I was saying about teaching kids to be entrepreneurial, always looking for the opportunities. And mm -hmm. you get that in the United States, which is why until recently the United States was such a pleasure to live in. Now, unfortunately, it's a frightened country because of this so-called war on terror. Uh, and it's inward-looking, etc. But, you know, there have been years. I've, you know, I fell in love with America when I lived there in 1970. And it's vibrancy, entrepreneurial spirit, get up and go. So th you can make life better. Mm. And you've got to focus on those opportunities and not to get too depressed listening to people just giving warnings. Even the Club of Rome report in 1972, we provided a number of scenarios. Obviously one was depressing, which is pretty well what Suzuki is repeating. Um, but we also said, look, if countries can work together, mm. we can create ways of saving the environment. Yeah, The opportunities are there. If you, My second doctorate was looking at the high level of military expenditure. 
And I was looking at what we could do with that high level of military expenditure. We could reinvent the earth. You know, within three months, I could provide clean water and sanitation throughout all of Africa. You know, the sums of money are there. Mm. It's just they're being misspent at the moment. Mm. So if we can get our act together, we can actually make a much better world than we've currently got. One of my favourite sayings is every situation is an opportunity depending on your mindset. Exactly. Um, Coming now back to to social media again, uh, the reason I'm curious is obviously, you know, we've had the advent of the internet, which, you know, for some caught them by surprise. For others, you know, they saw it coming a mile off. Um, you know, a lot of people didn't see social media coming along and mm. now it's it, it, it started and it's gained a lot of momentum uh, and it's really, you know, it, it's got to the point now where, you know, even Facebook and Twitter can make or break an election in, yeah. in some of the most powerful economies yeah. in the world. Where do you see social media heading in the next, say, three to five to ten years and do you see something like an evolution of social media coming that is going to be even perhaps, you know, more more than what we're seeing right now. Absolutely, because it goes back to Moore's law, right? Right, doubling power of computers, yep. um, and Facebook has got where it is because there are simply so many computers in the world, and we've still got another th- three billion people to put online. But we will do so eventually. Yep. Um, that, by the way, is also new business opportunities. Yes, uh, opening up because you've now got a global market of billions of people. Um, so yes, we will certainly will see them. I have no idea what they will be. Zuckerberg himself didn't know that he was going to be running such a major industry. Um, That's just the nature of it. Just grab the thing and run with it and just see what what will come out of it. And broadcasting. You've talked about, you know, broadcasting and narrowcasting and we're now seeing a lot of the major networks even broadcasting through, you know, yeah, uh, Twitter and through through Facebook. Do you you see... um, the, the, the places from which we get information changing more than what they are already? Because obviously we've got our different news outlets and then we've yeah. got social media. Yes, well, we've also, and of course, we've got the individual's reporter yep. who supplies information. BBC, every time, keeps saying, if you've got film footage, let us yeah, right. upload it. Mm. Um, so, yes, there's always going to be more and more scope. But it goes back to not so much the availability of information, but how you make sense of it all. Which goes back to my tagline, right? Helping people make sense of the world. Yeah. Because now getting information is like trying to drink water from a hose. Yeah. There's just so much of it. And people feel overwhelmed. Um, This is true. I'm not on Facebook. Yeah. I don't do any social media. That's partly because I spend so much time in security space. Right. When you're in security, you are paranoid. Yeah, right. And social media is the Achilles heel for all of that. Um, So I'm, I'm not on Facebook or the social media or Twitter or anything like that. I'm also coming across people who are saying, I'm just so overwhelmed mm. with what's hitting me every day. I'm just unsubscribing from a lot of stuff uh, because I just need to have time to think. I think one of the growth areas will be finding time for people to sit and think. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> and that's the value of podcasting, by the yeah. way. Could you hear something? Yeah. Stop the machine, reflect on it for a yeah. while, then you move on. Yeah. Um, so... For me, I think that silence and people being able to meditate, think on process, if that's the Mm. jargon, process the material um, will be the way. The Baroness Susan Greenfield, who's at Oxford, has uh, generated a debate about the click and flick generation. So the click and flick generation are young people who 
set out, set out to read one web page, but then click onto the next link, click onto the yeah, next. Right. Never quite finish a particular web page. Yeah. But that also means they're rewiring their brains. We've discovered mm. more about the brain in the last 30 years than we had in the previous 3,000. And we know the brain is a muscle that rewires itself. And so my young students have brains that are different from mine because mm. I love reading long books. These are people who have difficulty, sure, reading long books, sure they're great at you know being nimble with the, with the information technology, et cetera, but they uh, are not getting a, a full sense of context or depth of knowledge mm. uh, and they're going to be very glib, very superficial. And I think it'll, there'll come a point then there'll be a reaction against that and people will say, look, we've just got to spend more time uh, the phrase that I had as an undergraduate, you read and inwardly digest, mm. not just click and flick. Yeah, right. I actually read somewhere recently that the, the human attention span is diminishing at, a, at record yeah. <laughs> at record rates. Um, I remember here, reading one study that, you know, even as far as 10 or 15 years ago, it was at seven seconds, but we're now sitting at approximately three seconds. Oh, right. I don't know how true yeah. that is. It, you know, it was, it was one of those articles in, a, in an airport magazine. But I am curious to know if this is going to fundamentally affect the way we as humans connect with one another, but also the way that we commercial, essentially behave commercially as well. Yeah. Well, I, what is interesting, of course, with commercial is the issue of trust. Yeah. And if you're dealing with people online, how do you know you can trust mm. them? It's a f funny thing, you know, human nature doesn't change very much. If you ever do business with the Chinese, you'll know you spend an awful lot of time finding out about your, your wife or husband, um, your children and whatever, your family, because they're trying to build up that notion of trust before they do business with you. Um, in a click and flick business environment, which is purely transactional, I think we will end up with problems of trust. Mm. Um, so I think that there may be some real implications for how we do business. Remember in the, the old city of London, the phrase was, uh, my handshake is my bond. Mm. You didn't need to put it in writing, you just shook hands on it. Uh, and that enabled the British, there's actually the impact of the Quakers who were super honest individuals, yeah, right. you know, cabris yeah. and fries, yeah. et cetera. These people moved into banking and finance because they came out of a religious mindset, which is based on honesty. Right? We're seeing it today in Africa because Africa is growing rapidly in the Christian part of Africa where Christians are imbued with a certain sense of honour and you can trust Christians. So they're the ones who are getting the business. This is exactly what happened with the wow. Quaker families in yeah, London right. at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Huh. Now, you need to be able to find a way of being able to guarantee trust and in a world where you end up with a thousand friends, yeah. how many of them are really friends? And the connection <laughs> is based on, you know, a photo and, like you say, a click and a yeah. flick. John Dunbar at Oxford um, talks about the Dunbar number, which is 140. Right. So Dunbar reckons that you can really only ever have 140 friends. Yeah, right. Right, leaving aside Facebook, but 140 is about the size of a a military unit, a contingent company in the Australian system, um, or it could be a university college, about 140. So the total number of pro friends you can process in your lifetime, about 140 at any one time. Um, so when I hear about people who have got a 1,000 friends on Facebook, I just have to say, well, you must be spending an awful lot of your time on Facebook. Go out and get a life. Well, this is interesting, and, and that's where I'm curious to know if you see the way that we 
the way that we socialize actually changing, you know, because right now there's talk of virtual reality becoming something that takes over where, you know, yeah. parents right now are, are afraid that their kids will stay in their room for 12 hours yeah. playing video games. But I'm curious, are the parents of the future going to be worried that their, their child is strapped into a simulator yeah, that they never worse. actually come out of because yeah. they're living in a full Absolutely. simulation? And they will have diabetes, they'll be obese, they'll have all sorts of health issues and also anxiety problems. Mm. So when I grew up in post-war London, my parents used to give me a packet of cheese sandwiches and I went up collecting, went up to London collecting the engine numbers from steam engines. Right. See, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> if my parents were to do that today, they'd be arrested for neglect. Yeah, no kidding. Right. So we, so we, we yeah. pick the children up from the ballet, we take them out to the sport, etc. So the children are living in a, in a little bubble. Mm. But how do they get to connect with reality? Mm. Uh, and, the, and I see that even in my own Boston University students, the high level of anxiety um, because that's the anxiety in America. People are trigger happy as well, mm. anxious. Um, so I'm very worried. I think kids should be out and about either playing sport or at least, you know, being in some sort of community activity, getting to meet other yeah, people, definitely. messing around in the mud, etc. They should be doing that, not spending so much time on screens. I think it's important... They spend time with a screen, just catching up with the yep. world, etc. But not to do it exclusively. They should be out and about playing in the the garden or whatever. So population, you know, many people have talked about the population debate. Um, Suzuki was talking about it. Bill Gates talks about it. You know, a lot of people talk about it. You know, from a number of different perspectives. But you know, they, and they look at it as this is the issue. You know, we've yeah. got so much population. If it wasn't for the population, the earth would be so so much better off. What do you see happening? Well, there's a debate which again goes back to the Club of Rome report. Yeah, right. right. Uh, between two uh, two Americans, um, one was talking about the population bomb, which is Paul Ehrlich, who's still alive, and the other one is Barry Commoner, who was uh, also an American. I'm not sure if he's still alive. So he talked about the consumption of resources. So, um, so Paul Ehrlich was simply saying, "Ah, oh, these wretched Asians and Africans are having too many children." Barry Commoner said, no, the problem is with us in America. We are consuming too many resources. Mm. And that's now, of course, the problem in China. Yeah, China right. is now number one yep. consumer. Um, so the world could survive if everybody lived like the average Indian. Mm. But if the average Indian lived like the average American, we would be in trouble, is which is exactly what's happening. Perspective. Yeah, so it's a question so of... So the issue isn't as much as population control as it is as resource consumption. consumption control. And then you've got to ask yourself, and it goes back to new economic models, again, Club of Rome work on what's called the blue planet. So if you think of planet Earth, um, there was no pollution big time until the Industrial Revolution, right? So in nature... Everything is someone else's food. So everything gets cycled, recycled mm -hmm. yep. on planet Earth, right? So this morning I had grass on my cornflakes that had passed through a cow. Yep. So when I'm dead and buried, the grass will eat me, yep. right? So that's your circle of nature. But then we start to produce plastics, right, which do not biodegrade, mm. a lot of metals that do not biodegrade quickly. So we're producing pollution at this time. Um, now, the challenge for us is to reinvent our economy so we can recycle everything. So instead of buying a car, until, of course, driverless cars come along, instead of buying a car, you basically will hire one. And then when the car, you finished with the car, after five years or ten years, you say to the car company, come and take it away. Mm. They then have to design the car to make sure they can dismantle it all 
and recycle the components. So mm. you, we're building up then um, a new type of economic activity because oh, wow. the old economic activity from 1750 onwards, uh, remember that 1750 is just the standard date that we use, but from, say, 1750 onwards, resources were just so damn cheap you never had to worry about it. You know, mm. you talk about George Washington or the land he used to own. The land was, was useless but he owned thousands of acres of land which was you couldn't really use. Now, of course, if you go to that part of Virginia, every square inch costs a, a packet. So we've come out of an era when resources, being land or materials, were very cheap. Now we're moving into a new era where everything is going to be much more expensive. Um, therefore, we need to find a way of rationing everything yeah, right. in order to save the earth. I think that's why I think there's going to be a whole new economic revolution. I think there are plenty of new opportunities opening up. And as I say, the blue economy is one of those economic op- opportunities. Mm. Oh, I love that perspective. And it's so enlightening and it, it's so, and it makes so much sense. Yeah. Like it forces us to, to evolve. So you've, you've said that your, um, your catch line is helping people make sense of the world. How, how do we make sense of the world uh, when we don't have you sitting beside us? <laughs> <laughs> there is no magic website or anything yeah. like that. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about 10,000 hours. I don't mm, know if you've read the book. I have, yeah. Right? So 10,000 hours represents the amount of time a child will spend at school until they leave at 18. And that's the amount of learning that I've had to put in to try to get my head around world affairs and business. But don't ask me about sport or gardening <laughs> or wine. Oh, oh, I know nothing about cooking, any of those things. Cooking? Or cooking. Yeah, right. No, no, Jane does the cooking. So I'm not an expert in any of those things. I've just specialised in it and I've just kept at it. Yeah, right. Because I've been and because I see myself as a communicator, as yeah. I say, trying to help people make sense of the world. And you do it so well. I, I feel so so grateful to have you ha- have had you here today. You've mentioned now a number of times the Club of Rome, and I want to finish that question. But before I do, you know, oftentimes we see something talked about in, in mainstream news is the wealth gap. Yeah, you know, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. You know, we've heard it many times before. With where we're going, with you know a lot of disruption, what do you see happening when it comes to, to, to wealth in general in Australia and, and the rest of the world? This is a really big worry that I've got. Um, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting richer but not at the same rate. Yeah, right. Right? So when I lived in the United States in 1970 and I was selling encyclopedias door to door. Really? Which is why I'm a, a good salesperson. Wow. <laughs> oh, I like you even more now. <laughs> so... We were told when we entered the house, check that they've got a, a telephone. In, the, in 1970, the telephone was the cutoff point between being rich and poor. In the United States today, we have more phones than there are people, mm. right? So the poor are richer today than they would have been back in 1970. But the rich have gotten even richer. Um, and so there is a growing gap between the rich and the poor. Uh, it's partly induced by by taxation. You know, President Eisenhower in the 1950s, when America was at it, in my view, at its best, 87 cents in the dollar. CEOs were not greedy because there was no point in it. You're going to give so much back to Uncle Sam. Yeah, right. So CEO salaries were much lower than today, right? Because of the high rate of taxation. So it was a different America in those days. Now, because of in this case Reagan, in Great Britain's case, Mrs. Thatcher. We've seen the reduction of high levels of taxation and the emphasis, therefore, on CEOs wanting to make more and more money. So, yes, there is a growing gap there. There's a growing gap in terms of technology. I've already identified the way in which we're getting certain jobs. 
being taken mm. over by IT, information technology. Um, but then other new opportunities opening up, but they tend to be for people who are well-educated. Um, so going back to my Trump voters in the United States, um, those people are a product of a society where you could at one time in the Eisenhower era earn a good living without a college education. That's now impossible in the United States. Mm. So um, you, you've got a number of reasons why there is a growing gap between the rich and the poor. My worry is that we will end up with increased violence. Now, either people will do the violence themselves, take it out, in, in, which is what we see in the United States, by the way. In the US, everybody is living longer than ever before, right? Blacks are living longer, Hispanics are living longer. But there is one category of white people that actually now are dying prematurely. They are male, female, white, non-college educated Americans. Uh, these are the ones who are most likely to have voted for Trump. And they wipe themselves out with opioids, alcohol and drugs. Is that right? Uh, well, sorry, with guns. Yeah, so right. with guns. So they're, they're actually, you've got now a, a section in America which has actually got shorter life expectancy. So I talk a lot about increased life expectancy but I'm also conscious of the fact that we have groups of people who are actually not living as long as they should be. The same is also to be noticeable in the United Kingdom. Austerity is killing people. Hmm. So we need to bear in mind that there is this going on. Now, will they therefore just take the violence out of themselves and just go out with opioids? Or will they in fact say, I'm going to take somebody with me Yeah, right. and shoot a few people or whatever in an act of desperation and violence? It's, it's not a good society where you have a huge gap between the rich and the poor. If you look at the surveys of societies in the world that are seen as the healthiest ones in which to live, they're Scandinavian, they all have high rates of taxation, right? but the easy provision of housing, education. I tell my students from Boston, what are you wasting your time for studying in America? Go to Germany. They have courses in English for free. You can get a German degree for free. And the same with other parts of Scandinavia yeah, right. because they value education. Remember, mm. I keep coming back to education. Mm. I'm obsessed with it. And so the Germans and the Scandinavians, the Danes, make it available for people to get education, even foreigners get free mm. education. That's nuts. How do we as businesses today, whether I'm, you know, whether I'm 55 Joe Bloggs with a, you know, bricks and mortar, or if I'm the 21, 21 year old tech startup, or you know, the 18 year old or the 15 year old school who's thinking about their tech startup, how do we even consider or the idea of future proofing a business if we're in business today? Well, that's why I go back to those three techniques. You yep. just keep those three techniques in your mind. One is prediction. Yeah. And in particular, Moore's Law. Always be asking yourself, how will software affect my business? Mm. Software eats the world. How will computers affect my business? Secondly, um, have a design mindset, which is the, the preferred future. So that's blue ocean thinking, but you've also got design thinking. Always be working on the business, looking for new opportunities that, that can exist. Never be satisfied with what you've got. The time of greatest uh, danger comes at the time of greatest success. Mm. In other words, when, you, when you're Complacent. doing so well, you let down your guard. This is the, the worry I have about Australia because I hear politicians boasting about the longest continuous economic boom in world history. Yeah, but we shouldn't be complacent. Mm. We've always got to be on our toes. 
looking for the warning signs, which takes me into number three, scenario planning, which helps you to identify those warning signs. Keith, I, I'm, I don't, this doesn't happen very often, but I am quite speechless. I can't thank you enough for your time today. Your knowledge and your experience is clearly exceptional and runs very deep. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media, at Kerwin Ray.